One of my earliest childhood memories was when I was probably about four years old. I remember looking out the front window and seeing the trash collectors come along and pick up our trash. And I remember looking at, with great admiration at these guys do their work. This was back in the days when there'd be one guy driving the truck, and there'd be another guy that'd be on the back of the truck. And uh, when the truck would come to slow down and come to a stop, he would jump off the truck and run over and pick up the trash can and, and dump it into the, the trash truck, and the trash truck would come with this, these big metal pinchers. And, and I thought, when, as, a, as a little boy looking at these, these brave, I mean, cool, athletic guys just picking up the trash and dumping it in, I, I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I could think of, of nothing more glamorous and exciting, flirting with danger every day and getting to parade yourself past every house on the street. I mean, how glamorous could that be? And I remember thinking, when I grow up, I want to be a garbage collector. But then got a little older, and my parents got me some G.I. Joes for Christmas. And I remember playing with those, those little guys, and I wanted to be a soldier. Now, most of my soldiering I took out on my brothers and probably traumatized my mother more than anyone else. If you had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, I want to be a soldier. And then a little later on, I discovered the thrill of swinging a hammer. And I wanted to be a carpenter. I'm pretty sure that my dad did not appreciate my carpentry ambitions as he noticed nails being driven into the shelves that he had built in our garage. But if you had asked me at that time what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I want to be a carpenter. And that changed to various ambitions throughout my childhood. When we ask children what they want to be when they grow up, usually they're thinking of, of someone that they admire or, or something that is so exciting and so interesting and and so fulfilling that it just fills every nook and cranny of your being. That's what I want to be when I grow up. You know, I think a lot of us are still trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. I mean, what is it that's going to be, be so admirable? Uh, who is it that is, is so interesting, so fascinating, so glorious that we would say, I want to be like him when I grow up? Whatever that is, it has to be at least two things. It has to be perfect because the human heart won't be satisfied with anything that's broken or flawed. And second, it has to be forever. Because the human heart is satisfied with nothing less than eternity. As Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, he has put eternity in the heart of man. Like we have this infinite craving that cannot be filled with anything finite. He's put eternity in our hearts. And so whatever we want to be, it has to be perfect and it has to be forever. And we all have this craving for that. Now, no wonder when Paul describes the destiny for God's children, he says in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? When we as believers grow up, when we become finally who God intends us to be, what is that going to be? It says in verse 29, to be conformed to what? The image of His Son. And that is perfection, and that is eternity. What do we want to be when we grow up as believers? If someone were to ask you that, what do you want to be when you're finally who you're supposed to be? Here should be the heart cry. I want to be like Jesus. 
Because only in becoming like Jesus can you enjoy God forever. Only in becoming like Jesus can you be finally what God intended you to be in every way. Only in becoming like Jesus can you find someone that you can perfectly admire, a joy that will just fill every nook and cranny of your being. But there's a problem, and that is we're not there yet. We're just not there yet. We're not perfectly like Jesus, are we? I mean, just look around the room. Are we perfectly like Jesus? Are we exactly what God wants us to be right now? No, we're not. And there's perhaps no greater reminder of the fact that we're not there yet than the fact that you and I experience sin and suffering in our lives. Paul has assured us, the Bible has said that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and yet even though the condemnation has been wiped away, it's been written off our record, yet we're still in this world and we experience pain and suffering, and sometimes it can make us feel, does God really love me? And that is the question that Paul is addressing in verse, beginning in verse 18 of the section in Romans 8. He, he says, okay, when you, when you talk about suffering, you want to talk about suffering well, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. What is the glory that's going to be revealed to us? It is the glory of becoming perfectly like Jesus. That is being perfectly what we are intended to be, something that will just fill every nook and cranny of our being with joy. And yet often, and this is the burden of my heart as I study this passage, is that we don't value Christ-likeness like we should. We don't value it like we should. There's so many other things that make us think, I want to be like that. I want to be like that instead of I want to be like Jesus. As believers, we get so sidetracked by other things. And what Paul is saying here in these verses beginning in verse 23, is that being like Jesus is so glorious that it's something that every true believer groans for. This is so great, as he said earlier in this section, that not only the creation groans for it, but, but we also, look at verse 23, we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is the hope that we are saved for. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we were not saved for the hope that we're going to live in, in luxury here on earth. That's not the hope that we're looking for. We're not saved in the hope that someday we're going to have the, the chiseled body that we've always wanted. That's not the hope of a believer. All this stuff is going away. There is a hope that transcends this world, and it's the hope of perfectly glorifying and enjoying God in being like His Son, Jesus Christ. And the message of this section here in Romans 8 is that your future glory, my future glory as a believer in Christ is so great that true believers groan for it. And this groaning is described in verses 23, 24, and 25. Here's how we're going to divide it. Paul answers three questions about our groaning. What prompts our groaning? What is the object of our groaning? What are we groaning for? And then what is the manner of our groaning? What prompts our groaning What's the object of our groaning and what is the manner of our groaning? We'll begin with this question, what prompts our groaning? We see this in the first part of verse 23. Look at it in your Bible. What is it that prompts you to long for being like Jesus? It is, you guessed it, the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit has been the topic of this chapter here in Romans 8 ever since the very beginning when he says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I mean, the the life of a believer is a Spirit-dominated life. We live life in the Spirit. That's why Paul makes this great contrast between thinking about the things of the flesh, the things that are going away, and thinking about the things of the Spirit. And so also, when it comes to our groaning for being like Jesus. Who is it that prompts that groaning? What is the impulse of that groaning? It is the fact that you and I, as believers in Jesus, have something brand new in us, have actually something in us that belongs to a future age, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. We have the Spirit within us that's prompting us to groan for Christ-likeness. Paul describes him as the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, let me explain this to you. And when he says the first fruits of the Spirit, he's saying this the first fruits, that is the Spirit. Okay, so in other words, the Spirit is the first fruits. Does that make sense to you? The Spirit of God is the first fruits. Well, then what is the first fruits? The first fruits, it's that initial harvest. About a year ago or so, a friend of mine took me out to his farm about the time when his squash plants were pushing up through the soil. We got down, we knelt down, we looked at that the the cracked and dry ground, and I just was astonished to see the strength and determination of these little green tendrils just coming up, actually pushing the clods of soil right up. And, And a little bit later, those plants produced squash, and the the first ripe squash was the first fruits. It was the the first of the harvest that guaranteed a harvest to come. There's two respects in which this is important for us. It is the first enjoyment of the harvest, but also it's a guarantee that the harvest will come. The first fruits is, is like dad bursting in from the field after weeks of waiting, and his arms are loaded with ears of corn, and he says, this is it. Like, this is the first ripe corn of the season, and there are acres and acres still to come. It's the initial gift of a bounty that belongs to the future. There's a similar concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, where instead of using the metaphor of first fruits, Paul uses the metaphor of a down payment. All right, same, same idea here, right? It's a little bit of something that's yet to come. It's like you get to enjoy it right now, and it guarantees that the rest is coming. It's not the whole thing, but it's giving you a taste for it. Maybe this will resonate with you. You may have a tradition in your home where the kids are allowed to open a present on Christmas Eve. Gather around Christmas Eve, get to choose one present, and open it up. And man, that is like the first fruits of Christmas. Because, you know, if this Christmas Eve present was this good, man, what is Christmas morning going to be like? The Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our redemption. It's a gift that God allows us to enjoy right now that says, oh, and the rest is coming. And because you and I as believers, we have in our lives the first fruits of the Spirit, that is this initial guarantee of what is to come, it makes us long for it even more. You see how that works there? Because the Spirit is the first fruits, it makes us say, oh, Oh, I want the whole thing to come. Oh, bring it. Make me like Jesus now. It makes us groan for the glory to come because we have the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who prompts our groaning because He is the down payment. He is the first fruits. He is the Christmas Eve present. He prompts that's groaning 
by assuring us that we are sons and daughters of God. So look back at verses 15 and 16. How is it that you having the Spirit of God within you just makes you groan for being like Jesus? Well, here's, here's one way in which he does it. He does it because, as it says in verse 15 of Romans chapter 8, he is in you as the spirit of adoption, and by him you call to God, Abba, Father. Here's what's going on. You, the Spirit is saying, God is your Father, and you're looking at yourself, and you're thinking, I believe that, but I'm not completely like a son or daughter yet, and I want to be. And this is what John is talking about in his first epistle. Beloved, we, we, we are the children of God now, but it's not yet appeared what we will be. It's this, this already not yet idea of, of a believer's experience. Yes, it's guaranteed for us in the future. We've been saved once for all, but our salvation doesn't come all at once. And the Holy Spirit living within us is telling, you're a child of God. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. I said, I believe it, but I want it to be complete. You have the Holy Spirit within, a, within you prompting, prompting you to groan for Christ-likeness. He does this also by allowing us to bear fruit, as we read of in Galatians chapter 5. I mean, you, you start to, to bear the fruit of love and joy and peace, and you're like, I want more of that fruit in my life. I want to look more like Jesus. He does it also by the work in the church. You realize that when a church comes together and when they function as a church, that there is a foretaste of glory to come. It's the manifest, this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good, all right? So the Spirit is manifesting His presence among us as we're singing. As you, as you saying this song about heaven coming, there is a higher throne. And, and did you feel in your heart a longing for that? Did you feel a craving that, oh, oh, what, I'm going to stand around that throne and all tears will be wiped away and I get to see my fellow sufferers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to be all together and it's not going to be just us, but it's going to be people from every tribe and every tongue all unified in praise to God and that makes us groan for glory. It's the Holy Spirit working in us a manifestation of, of His presence for the common good. The Spirit also it prompts this groaning for glory by allowing us to behold Jesus. We understand more of who Jesus is because of the Holy Spirit. This is what John is talking about in his, in his gospel. Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and He's going to teach you about me. The, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to make us admire and adore Jesus more. The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to make us think, isn't the cross of Christ amazing that Jesus would, would die for me? That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And as we see Jesus as who He is, it makes us groan for glory. I recently saw this advertisement for some video streaming thing. And the tagline of this advertisement was, this is going to ruin TV for you. Because what they're saying is, this is going to be so good what you see our product, TV won't be even a thing for you anymore. It will ruin TV for you. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives for this world. Once you catch a glimpse of glory, once you see the glory of Christ, 
the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. It will ruin the world for you. Yes, we can appreciate the beauty of this world, but it's a fleeting beauty. Yes, we can enjoy the gifts that God gives us, but they're just temporary gifts. But oh, for the, oh, for the higher throne, right? I mean, oh, for the, the, the skies that will never be rolled up like a scroll. Oh, for the, the ceaseless song. Oh, for a time when I can perfectly praise Jesus instead of being clothed in my mortality. That's what I'm longing for. And, and Jesus and a, and a glimpse of, of glory, it's, it's ruined the world for me. The indwelling Spirit within us makes us groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And this is what Moses experienced. Listen to these words. I'm going to read to you two verses from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Even the reproach of Christ has ruined the treasures of Egypt for him. It's not worth it anymore. I found something better. Brothers and sisters in Christ, have you found something better in Jesus? I mean, isn't Jesus so much better to you than all these other things that you could be enamored by? That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Second, what do we long for? What is it that we're craving after. And this is what we've said all throughout. We find this in the latter part of verse 23 when he says, we we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? You see it there? For adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, if, if some of you, you're thinking, you're like, wait, I thought that we were already adopted. What's going on here? This is this truth about salvation. It's assured for us now, but the full completion of it is yet to come. We are adopted now. Yes, we are children of God, but we are not now what we are going to be. And in this verse, Paul puts his finger on the most visible aspect of our fallenness. The most tangible, the most visible aspect of the fact that we are fallen beings. And what is that? It's our bodies. It's the decay of our bodies. It's the fact that we don't live forever, and we don't have infinite capacities. And even the things, even the very best things that you and I do are still tainted by our sin. Isn't that true? I mean, you you can look back on a life full of accomplishments, and and at the the very pinnacle of your career, there's going to be something you didn't do right, and you won't be satisfied with it. Because our bodies, the way they are, are the result of the fall. We, are, we have moral limitations. We have temporal limitations. We corrupt what we touch. You think of the world's most powerful conquerors, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great. Like, these guys had limitless ambition. And that even they were limited. Even if their rules had been morally good, yet still physically they were limited by death and just the corruption of life. The fact is, we need new bodies. And that's precisely what we long for. This is just like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to these verses. He says this, For in this tent, referring to our bodies, in this tent we groan. 
uses the same word that he uses in Romans 8. We groan, we sigh, we have this longing, it's this inward craving. In his tent, these mortal bodies, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. That is, naked in our mortality. We're frail, we're susceptible, we're, we're naked, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now get this. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And because we have the Spirit of God within us, we, we long for this time when we can perfectly do what God wants us to do. And I hope that this destroys any notion of heaven as being a place where we're going to be these disembodied spirits floating around in sheets, or whether we're going to be these little chubby babies floating on clouds, holding a harp, strumming it. No, no, no. This is not what heaven is. What will our bodies be like? The Bible doesn't describe them for us. only gives a sense of the vast difference between what they will be and what they are now. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul compares it to the difference between a seed and what comes out of the seed. Our resurrection bodies are going to be as different from our present bodies as an oak tree is from an acorn. Acorn can't spread out branches. An acorn can't provide a habitat for birds and shelter for animals. An acorn can't push through roots into the soil, but an oak tree can. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I don't have the intelligence to preside over heavenly courts, as Paul says we will. You and I don't have the, the physical stamina and endurance to, to reign with Christ, but one day we will, and that is at the redemption of our bodies. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what prompts our longing? It is the Holy Spirit. What do we long for? It is the redemption of our bodies. And third, how do we long for it? We see this in verses 24 and 25. How do we groan for this? How, how, what, what's our attitude? Do we just say, oh, well, heaven's coming, earth stinks, I'm out of here, whatever. Is that our attitude? No. Paul says, in this hope, we were saved. Now, no one hopes for what he sees. Because hope that is seen is not hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what is, what is the attitude? What's the manner in which we are supposed to groan and long? It is, is one of hope. And it's not just a kind of, I hope so. This hope is faith-filled because it's not seen. We don't see with our eyes, but we, we live in light of it. It's something that is, is unseen, unfelt, unsmelt, but, but we live as if it's true because it is. That's living in hope. It's faith-filled. It's patient. That is, we are, it allows us to endure difficult things. This is hope, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that does not make us shame because we know it's coming, and it's eager. We wait for it, kind of like the way I would wait for Krista when I'd stand outside our dormitory when we were dating. We we're going to pick her up for a date. I'm like, I'm eager for her to come out. This is not, I hope so, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. This is the kind of hope that if you're ever on vacation and you go to the beach and you're able to get up before sunrise because you want to see the sun come up over the horizon, you've been there before, and you, you get there just when the sky begins to turn that beautiful 
pink hue, and, and you stand there on the beach with the waves crashing in, and you're not biting your nails thinking, is it going to come up today? Is it going to happen? I don't know. Other people mingle out. What do you think? Is it going to do it today? No. You're, you're smiling in the twilight because you know. You know. That's hope. That's eagerness. You don't see it. You don't see the sun there, but you're standing there because you know it will rise. In the same way, we as believers, we can smile through the shadows, not because the suffering is pleasant, but because we know the sun will rise. We'll see Jesus, and we'll be like Him. And the frailties of our bodies and the suffering of this present time, then we'll say, oh, it wasn't even worth comparing with the glory that was revealed to us. Well, no. That's faith. That's eager expectation. That is the hope that energizes us, believers. Not a hope for a bigger house or a better car or a more satisfying job. That's not the hope that we're saved for. We are saved for a hope that is eternal and that will never pass away. Believers, have you set your hope on that? You're distracted by things that you think, oh, if I could only have that job, if only I could be like that person, oh, if only I could, I could be married to someone like that, or if only I could do, do this. No, 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 no. This is all going away, and we can smile in the shadows. It's coming. We can find so many things to groan for. We can find so many things to long for. You're single, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, you're married, children, or when your children will get out of the house, you're, you're, you're older, you have children, you're hoping for grandchildren or for just at the time of retirement, and you're just groaning for that. But there is nothing that is worth truly groaning for, nothing other than being like Jesus. And that is the destiny that God has prepared for you as believers. And that is the glory as this entire section in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 18 all the way to verse 31. This is the glory that outweighs your suffering. And this has been a theme for us the past three weeks. Are you suffering right now? I've spoken with many of you who are suffering. I want to assure you from the Word of God that the glory, the hope that, you, the hope that you have for that glory can outweigh that suffering. I will remind you that that's real. Remember the name Elizabeth Elliot? Her husband was killed, martyred on the banks of a, a river trying to win some native South Americans to Jesus. She had been married for less than three years when her husband's body was found skewered in that river. Later on, Elizabeth Elliot writes, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. And she wrote a book entitled, Suffering is Never for Nothing. That's true. That's true. It's true not only because the Bible says it, but because people that have followed Jesus have found this to be true over and over again. I've referred in the past to John Bunyan in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, and John Bunyan was a man that experienced great suffering. In November 12th of 1660, he was preaching to his people. He was in church, just like we're in church right now, and the doors come flying open. The police come in and arrest him for preaching. 
And he's told that if he just quits preaching, then he, he, he'll be okay. But if he doesn't stop, he's going to go to jail. Bunyan firmly believed in his calling. And there were immediate and tragic consequences. When he was arrested, he was married to his second wife. His first wife had passed away. She was pregnant with a baby. When she heard of his arrest, she immediately went into labor and lost the child. Bunyan was given a trial, and again, he was urged to quit preaching, but he wouldn't. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He writes this, The parting with my wife and poor children have often been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones, also because I should have often brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them. One of John's children was a daughter who was blind, and it was his blind daughter that especially lay a heavy grief on his heart as he languished there for 12 years. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind little daughter might go under. It seemed like it would break my heart to pieces. But consider these words that Bunyan wrote in prison. I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the Word of God as now. Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place, in this state, to shine upon me. And sometimes when I have been in the savor of them, I've been able to laugh at destruction and to fear neither the horse nor his rider. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. The glory. The glory, it outshines the present suffering. This is real. This can be real for you, believer in Christ. It could be this morning that you, you're visiting with us, or maybe you've been going here for a long time, but you don't know about that. You've not experienced that groaning for glory because you don't have God's Spirit within you. I plead for you. If that's you, I prayed for you this morning. Before this service began early this morning, I came in this auditorium, there's nobody else in here, and I prayed for you. All you have to do, my friend, is to cry out to Jesus to be your Savior. Because the Bible tells us that, that if we believe on Him, we will be saved. And it's my cry that people would, would come here to this church and not only just be edified, but hear the gospel and trust in Christ. If you don't know the coming glory, and if you have no assurance of that because of what Jesus has done for you, there is not coming for you glory but destruction, eternal destruction. That's what the gospel teaches us. If that's you, cry out to the Lord. And for those of us who are believers, do you value Christ's likeness more than anything else? As I was preparing this message, I thought of the, the song, the words, when friends betray us, when darkness seems to win. We know that pain reminds this heart that this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life the rain, the storms, the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise.